everyone, this is Hippa, ILSR's Communications Manager. This week we have a special treat for you. We're bringing you a bonus episode from one of our friends and favorite podcasters, Laura Flanders. On the Laura Flanders Show, the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are actually doing it. This episode is titled, Whose Economy Is It? Ours. In the special report, experts talk about the new conversations regarding economic democracy that are happening between labor unions and community members in New York City. Hope you enjoy, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Building Local Power. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real-life models of shifting power from the few to the many in the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, and governance. Our city's economy, what is it for? New York's has been very good at piling up profits and building tall buildings, but all that private profit has come at a cost to public services and public trust. Could it be different? We have an issue of structural economic inequality that exists uh, that we haven't addressed. And only a real extension of public ownership and democratic control can achieve those objectives. Thinking of the city as a commons is a way to acknowledge that the city is generative. So when I'm asked, why do we need economic democracy? My short answer is that we need it to hold on to democracy. On this week's show, we talk about the new conversations that are happening between labor unions and community members, between residents, workers, and employers about how everyone's economy can move forward. That's this week on The Laura Flanders Show, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it. Welcome. Interest in the question of the economy is growing, as evidenced by an oversubscribed conference held at what used to be the Murphy Center, now CUNY's newest college, the College for Labor and Urban Studies. We've begun in the de Blasio administration constructing prototypes for how to build economic democracy. And the important thing is we all work together and learn together. I'm not saying we figured everything out. No, we have not. We're just starting. New York City faces the serious challenges of any major city, specifically when it comes to inequality and climate risk. But with Democratic majorities at both the city and state level in government, addressing those challenges is more possible now than it's been in decades. And some real experts are at the table. Notably, J. Philip Thompson, the city's deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives, who comes to the job with years of experience as a scholar and coalition builder and urban planner. For all of us wanting economic democracy, honest dialogue and deep unity across race and geography, we need to have a rough level of equality and resources and capacity. What? attracted you to working in New York? What's distinctive about New York City and its capacity to advance economic democracy? Well, New York has always been a leader in uh, innovation, but also in people's movements. The reason we had uh, created uh, the City University of New York, which until the 1970s was free, was because of immigrant movements fought for that in the 1930s and won it. The reason we have the largest public hospital system in the country is because people fought for that. 
and instituted it. The reason why uh, we have public housing was originated in New York, in the Lower East Side, uh, because people fought against slum housing. And these programs created the great middle class that America takes great pride in, but it actually came from these kinds of initiatives and these kinds of struggles. What do you lift up as the economic democracy initiatives that you're most proud of here in the city so far? Well, we are struggling with this, but one of the things that we're working on is actually using the institutions that I mentioned as anchor institutions. The hospitals alone in New York spend $12 billion a, a year buying goods and services. Uh, why can't we use some of that $12 billion spend to build firms that are democratically run and controlled, that have the welfare of the community and their workforce as a priority, companies that actually have a civic core to them, why can't we build those kinds of companies? Because around the world, there are plenty of examples. The idea that the private economy will take care of everyone's prosperity and all you have to do is leave it alone is a myth. Mm. And what we're really saying is local government has to step up and we actually have to plan and ensure that our dollars, our public dollars, are being used in the best possible way for the residents of this city. And that means building companies that are responsive to the people of this city. One of the many ways people are approaching economic democracy is through the city's health care budget. A group of advocates organized to approach uh, the state legislature, myself included, as I was serving as the chair. Roger Green, executive director at the Du Bois Bunch Center for Public Policy, speaking at CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies, our economy conference this May 2019. Of the Committee on Children and Families to create a new institution in Brooklyn, uh, which we did, a children's psychiatric hospital built at a cost of about $54 million, state-of-the-art institution, just incredible space. And the medical director turns to me and he says, well, there's one problem. The children, they don't want to go home. And that was my epiphany. We have an issue of structural economic inequality that exists uh, that we haven't addressed. We spoke to former New York State Assembly member Roger Green about his vision for transforming this, the largest sector of New York's economy. Let's talk macro to begin. Where do you see the connections between the economy and health care? Well, in, in New York City and New York State, healthcare is the largest um, uh, sector, you know. And so, you know, what we're looking at is the anchor institutions, particularly in Brooklyn, uh, being leveraged to address the, social, the structural economic inequality that has plagued central Brooklyn for some time. Huge contracts are given to major corporations, uh, bypassing the local economy, uh, which is struggling with wage insecurity, asset depression, um, uh, population displacement, and all of that uh, could be addressed if, in fact, the healthcare institutions themselves started to redirect their contracts back to the local economy. By redirecting those contracts back to enterprises that organize as uh, in a democratic way with workforce uh, democracy, uh, unionized worker co-ops, we address two things. Number one, uh, we provide a living wage, but also a broad-based profit sharing. 
Third thing it would do is it enhances the civic infrastructure of a community uh, by having people within those enterprises actively engaged in the practice of democracy. We think that's important also. We have a silver tsunami coming in New York where one in five New Yorkers will be elderly in need of home care. Home care workers right now are paid minimum wage. They're poorly trained. They don't know how to keep people out of hospitals because they're not trained to do that. So one of the initiatives we have as a city right now is a working group on long-term care. And we are really trying to model how do we bring together home care providers, unions, community groups together to say how do we create a long-term care system that works better for workers, better for patients, it saves government money by keeping people out of emergency rooms, and can be transformative. And, and for us, that is modeling economic democracy. One route to economic democracy is through worker ownership, and New York is home to the largest worker-owned co-op in the country, Cooperative Home Care Associates in the Bronx. We do the hardest work, but we don't get paid for what we do. Adria Powell, President and CEO, Cooperative Home Care Associates. You know, it took a while for us to get at least $15 an hour when I feel that we deserve more because in reality, we're there more than the family, we're there more than the nurses. This is not for everybody. You know, a lot of us take the training, but we don't make it. You know, we go to a client's home, we see what it's all about, and it's like, oh, no, this is not for me. You know, taking care of somebody that you don't even know that may even speak to you not correctly. You know, they, 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 they think that you're a maid, they think that you're there, they think they're the one that pays you. I think everyone should be a worker's owner because it's a lot to go with the check. You know, it's, 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 it's a lot of perks. You know, you can actually say, I own one piece of cooperative home care. You know, because remember, home care, the pay is low. So any type of dividend or any type of extra money that you get, it's, it's a blessing. So Cooperative Home Care Associates um, is a worker-owned cooperative. Lynn Benander, President, Co-op Power. Which means that anyone who works for the cooperative can also be an owner, but you're not required to be an owner. Being a worker-owned cooperative is one part of our model. Um, I think, in general, having a culture around participatory management and an open-door policy where we want workers to come in and express um, what's going on for them in their jobs, in their communities, is also part of this equation. And respecting and valuing the workforce and understanding that we need to invest in the workforce for them to have quality jobs so that they can go out and provide the kind of care that some of New York's most vulnerable populations need. Today in 2019, we have over 2,100 home care workers, and Cooperative Home Care is the largest uh, worker-owned cooperative in the United States. Some trade unions are thinking about worker ownership, too, like 1199, the healthcare workers. Shewal Amin is a vice president in the union who works with nursing home workers. Transitioning to worker ownership is not an easy move for a trade union. What are some of the obstacles? We need health care, all of us. And so what would be best for me would be best for you. And so if you can have someone that could translate, listen, I know that, this, that we can give you the best assistance, the best health care with the monies that we have, I think that's the best way to go. And the worker would know what's, what, what's, the, what's the best way to do it, I believe. Now, how does your work with nursing home workers intersect with this conversation about economic democracy? 
Well, in the the reality of uh, the workplace is that they are it's mostly women, immigrants, and low-paying jobs. And how it how we we see ourselves changing is having more of a a voice in the workplace. And in healthcare in particular, the issue becomes the taxpayers' dollars. And we want to have a say in what the monies that are shared with the taxpayers to in, in our in our workplace in the nursing homes in in the centers in the clinics that we want to have a, a say of what the profitability should should where it should be distributed to and how it's distributed so how is that working for you with users workers consumers residents politicians researchers all at the table the challenges are, are in, in our face but i believe we have the expertise and as 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 big as an organization as 1199 i believe we can we can iron out the 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 issues as collective bargaining becomes more and more stringent in terms of the the percentages of gross payroll as as technology becomes a part of the workforce as the issue that we have an aging workforce we need to figure out a different dynamic of of capturing capital farm members and so unionized co-ops is 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 a way is another tool if you if you will of of, of capturing that under mayor bill de blasio this april new york approved a 14 billion dollar plan to attack global warming and combat climate change a plan that's being called the city's own green new deal here's sean sweeney the director of the international program for labor climate and environment speaking at CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies R Economy Conference this May targets of the green new deal were 100% renewable energy within 10 years which in the terms of energy policy that's like a blink of an eye that's not an easy thing to do the second is that all emissions would be removed by from transport within 10 years now you only have to look at this for a few moments to realize what an enormous challenge that is from a technical angle it doesn't matter who owns it it's an enormous challenge but if it's left to investor whims and scruples essentially we have no chance even with full economic democracy and public participation that will be a difficult task but that is our task it's our historical opportunity and it's our responsibility to rise to that task You have a major investment about to be made in the name of the city around the Green New Deal. How are you in the administration working to ensure that the benefits of that investment are equitably distributed? Almost a quarter of the city's energy is going to close in about 3 years. J. Philip Thompson, deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives, the city of New York. Um we have to reduce consumption as well as expand new ways of of generating energy, uh renewable energy. And so that means uh we're going to have to have a retrofitting program for buildings to reduce energy consumption. We have 900,000 buildings in New York that need to be retrofitted ultimately. So we're talking about jobs for a generation. So one of the things we're working on are ensuring that our most at-risk young people, people who live in public housing, people in low-income communities actually get the training that they need so they can be the next generation of green architects, green carpenters, green engineers, green laborers, HVAC workers, etc. That's one. The other thing is uh we can have microgrids that produce energy on a local basis that are community owned. The question of community ownership is being raised right now around a 95-acre site that holds the Brooklyn Navy Yard. One of the community groups Uprose is calling for the whole thing to be an energy co-op to benefit community members. My name is Lynn Benander and I am the president of Co-op Power 
and uh, also the fund manager for the People's Solar Energy Fund. I get to talk to people about what their dreams and hopes are for how they want energy to happen in their community, what green jobs they want, what um, kind of investments they want to be making, what assets they want to own together. I am so excited to be working with leadership here in the city of New York because they're, they're already doing things in a different way. They put out a request for proposals um, to put solar on the Brooklyn Army Terminal roof. It said, we want the power to go to low-income people in this community and we're willing to exchange to reduce the lease payment if you'll give more of a discount to low-income community members. And we want UPROSE to end up with some ownership of this project in the end. So you're talking about power energy electricity and power decision-making. Yeah. And the power that comes from um, owning assets in a space. So co-ops, I mean, a lot of people associate the word co-op with their local cafe. Are co-ops really able to deal with energy production and electricity and solar power? Absolutely. So 75% of the land mass in the United States is served by electric cooperatives. Um, because when Roosevelt was president, he looked around and said, oh my goodness, this electricity is really changing how people can engage in their communities but economically, and we can't leave rural America behind. Within 50 years, the entire rural America was electrified, and that's all by building cooperatives. Rebecca Leary was one of the organizers of the R Economy Conference at CUNY. I think that with the hardship uh, that we are all facing, Every once in a while, there's hope and, and compassion that gets breathed into the solution. And that's happening in different places. You know, one of the things you see about um, cooperative economics around the globe and historically is people study together and then they start a business. Or they start a business and they study together. So we want to give them more content to study with. We are putting together a zine along with the Bronx Co-op Development Initiative. And so there'll be something from every workshop that'll be written up by a student or community activist. So there's a way to bring this into the classroom. Folks are studying this. People are writing about it. But when I say it, it's plural. It's plural. There are a lot of different ways to go into it. Worker co-ops come in all shapes and sizes, not to mention flavors. Taona Kitchen catered this Our Economy conference. We went to look at the backstory to this worker-owned cooperative kitchen based in Brooklyn, New York. Shilpa Nandwani. Kaona in Punjabi means to feast now. And Kaona in Visayan, which is a dialect in the Philippines, means to eat now. So that is just an example of how our worker co-op fuses both of our cultures together. One thing that we do is take these traditional meals and make them a little bit healthier without losing the history or the fun or the um, kind of attachment that someone might have with a dish. And we do that because when you go throughout the United States or even throughout the world, our communities, the Filipino and Indian communities, often live right next to each other. Cole Carruthers, co-founder, Kaona Kitchen. Um, and in history, our communities have had a lot of um, interaction. And so we're bringing that story and, and those flavors together side by side because they also taste really good together. <laughs> You know, I think more and more under like the leadership that we're in in the United States and even across the world, we're seeing just like a heightened sense of repression against people who who are working, who are um, going out there 
sacrificing their health and their trying to make a living um, in order to feed their families and then ultimately feed the nation. And so for us, being able to bring a whole new alternative of what economy can look like through worker cooperatives is really important because we see that the people who are making the decisions on where the profits go, who we cater to, for example, are they aligned with our mission and values are all really important and we will always put people and our community before profits. We're having this conference talking about economy, talking about where money is going, where the government allocates money, and knowing that almost $200 million every year is spent on a different nation's military and police that has, in the past two years, killed 27,000 Filipinos. That is part of our conversation. There are so many other places that this money can go, and worker cooperatives is one of those. Creating solidarity economics is one of those. Education is one of those. Healthcare is another one. And so when we go to talk to our representatives who are supposed to be representing us, we are going as grassroots organizers, we are going as worker owners, we are going as people who are looking at the global effects of imperialism and of capitalism and we know that just between the two of us doing this thing that's not enough so how many people can we reach how many people can we convince and influence that these things are all connected and that we are stronger together that is where um, our worker cooperative can go and is going we're not just trying to be another catering cooperative we're trying to be part of a larger movement Capitalism has always piled up profits. The question is, what do they do with them? Industrialists in the 19th century and others invested in things like this, a public library to share some public goods for the benefit of everyone. What's happened to that concept? It's feeling increasingly relevant, but public goods and space and resources are increasingly scarce. Professor Sheila Foster at Georgetown Law is advancing the idea of something she calls a co-city. If we think about the commons, we think about the natural environment, the, our God-given world, the lakes, the trees, the hills, the oceans, etc. That's our traditional concept of the commons. It's something that we all own in common and that the government holds in trust for us. But when you come into a city, you see that the city is a highly privatized landscape, right? Although it used to be a common, let's say just land, people came on and they plopped their houses down, they plopped their businesses and they bought things up. So how do you bring the concept of we all own something, this is all of ours, to a place that's highly privatized? So we see land trusts uh, popping up in cities like New York City, like London, all over the world, really. And the other example I would give here in New York City is I'm involved in a project in Harlem where we're trying to create a broadband network um, using, again, the infrastructure of the city, connecting into that, creating a new technology that allows a disaggregated network to put the internet in people's hands at an affordable price in public housing and in other buildings in Harlem. Libraries, in a sense, were the 19th century innovation to try to expand uh, education commons mm -hmm. um, outside of private ownership. Libraries today, we have a great one right here in New York, perhaps are a symbol of an effort from that century. What do you think a hundred years now might be the, from now might be the symbol of what we're doing today? It's a really good question. What is the innovation? Um, 
I actually think it may not be a place, but a sense of how we operate as a society more collaboratively. The one thing that's happening in the world is that cities are getting too big, right? And the communities are too diverse. They're becoming complex ecosystems. What that means is that it is, and, as, and we are seeing this, very difficult to meet the needs of different kinds of communities with a central decision maker, particularly when that central decision maker has its own pressures from uh, special interests and they're not always operating in the public interest. So I think what this pushes towards in the, the innovation of the 21st century that will last is to, to think in a more decentralized way. Resources and decisions, services and goods won't just come from a central place, but rather they'll be distributed. Is that the co-city that you're talking about? That is the co-city. The co-city is a co-created, co-produced, co-governed city. Um, and uh, if you think, think about the innovation of participatory budgeting. So it's already happening where it used to be you had one budget and the city decided who got what. Now the city's saying, we're going to decentralize that. We're going to give, we're going to set aside a million or millions of dollars and let these communities decide for themselves. Is New York alone? Is this initiative U.S. only? No, it's not U.S. only. Uh, so think about participatory budgeting. It started in Brazil. And now it's in cities all over the world. Um, we're labeling it to say that look at what's happening and how do we scale this up. This is a model that we can think about governing and managing in a much more democratic, much more socially just way the resources that are ours, the commons. I reject the idea that labor, quote unquote, sees the workplace as the primary place because labor doesn't only consist of unions. J. Philip Thompson deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives, the city of New York. I would say that one version of labor thinks that workplaces are where all the action is. But I would argue that folks who've been fighting in civil rights, folks who've been fighting in the women's movement, they're also dealing with labor issues. And part of the problem in America has been the narrow frame that labor unions have taken, which have actually weakened it. So I think in order to really build a strong labor movement, the labor movement has to encompass women. It has to encompass people of color. It has to change its identity and its narrative. So what does that look like here in New York City, especially as you advance this economic democracy agenda? Well, in New York City, I think it means getting labor unions and community groups together to come up with common plans for things like how we do business as a city, what kind of companies get contracts, how do we address the affordable housing crisis? Can labor bring in some of their pension funds? Is there a participatory process so that members of unions and members of communities can work with the city and others to say, here's how we want to see those dollars utilized because it's the people's money. I describe cooperative economics as two things. Rebecca Lurie, coordinator of the Community and Worker Ownership Project at CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies. Two things are required transparency with the resources, whatever they may be, and uh, democratic decision-making. How do we really show up together? Well, if you have years of oppression and uh, exploitation and suffering, you can't show up all that well. So we have to heal each other so we can show up. And that becomes part of democratic processes, is um, helping each other with our trauma. You've been listening to Whose Economy Is It? Ours, a special report on the new conversations that are happening between labor unions, community members, residents, workers, and employers about how everyone's economy can and must move forward to a more equitable economy for all. 
You can watch this week's episode and see all today's guests in action and find more of our coverage of new economy questions at our website, lauraflanders.org. And for additional research materials and information on all of the people on this program, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the LF show. You don't have to become a member there, but do consider joining our community. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Monica Mohapatra, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Natasha Gaspar, Jeannie Hopper, Joanna Pinto, and Dominic Marcella. The Laura Flanders Show is made possible from the Novo, Ford, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, and Fonda Foundations, as well as by listeners like you. So thank you. Stay kind, stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a rating uh, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced by the inimitable Lisa Gonzalez, along with Zach Fried and Hippa Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Owl. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you tune in again for the next episode of Building Local Power. Building Local Power.